Hey everyone, welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the host of this show, and the greatest living American writer. We are at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a terrific show for you this week. As always, Stephen Garrett will be here to talk about that little underdog Pixar movie called Lightyear, which is playing in theaters now. And Daniel Cohen, our resident gambling and food expert, will be here to talk about Iron Chef, Quest for an Iron Legend, as well as a new season of MasterChef, which is airing now on Hulu. Iron Chef is on Netflix. But first, it's superhero time, as it often is on this show. We're going to talk about Ms. Marvel on Disney Plus and The Boys on Amazon Prime, two different shows there could not possibly be in the pop culture universe. Lily Moyeri will be here to talk to me about it right after this break. On So I published a piece on the site last week where I mostly jokingly said, which superhero show should you watch with your kids, Ms. Marvel or The Boys? I mean, it's pretty obvious what the answer is there. And I just found um, I found the comparison of those two shows to be, be kind of instructive because to me, they represent two very opposite sides of the superhero spectrum. And both are streaming right now. Ms. Marvel is streaming on Disney Plus and The Boys is on Amazon Prime in its third season. And Lily Moyeri, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, one of our one of our favorite guests, one of our favorite contributors, is here to uh, chit-chat with me about these shows. Hello, Lily. Hello. Obviously, you know, Ms. Marvel is uh, it was not a show you were watching until I, I gave you the call for this. Uh, you know, it's obviously a a, a show. For kids, really, and, and, I, and I thought you would be a good person to talk about it, uh, not because you are a kid, but because, you know, you you work with kids at, in your role as a school librarian, and I felt like you could see how this show could relate to them or how they could relate to the show. I mean, and, and, and you watched the pilot, which aired last week on Disney+. Plus. Uh, what did you think? Uh, yeah, that's right. I did watch the pilot, and I was like, wait, am I watching Never Have I Ever? <laughs> Right. It, it had so many overlaps with the Netflix show that is the Mindy Kaling show about her growing up years. Um, really a lot of similarities in tone, style, language, feel. But I do have to say that I, I actually liked Miss Marvel a lot. And I was really surprised about that. I was I went in just with a lot of negative attitude for absolutely no reason, but just because you know, I wanted to be negative about it. And I really, really loved uh, the actor who plays Ms. Marvel. She was delightful. I think the word you used maybe in your write-up was charming. She's she's so likable. She's so cute. Yeah, well, so here's the thing. Like, Ms. Marvel is, there's a, there's a character named Kamala Khan who is a Pakistani-American uh, Muslim teenager who lives in Jersey City. Back when I was reading comic books, you know, before the dawn of time, Ms. Marvel didn't exist. Um, or when, if she did exist, she was the, the character who is now Captain Marvel. Uh, so they inter- they introduced this character 
I don't remember exactly when, but within the last 10 years or so. And it's, you know, it's part of the diversification of comic books, right? It's like, you know, she's essentially like a, a teenager a working, she's not working class, she's a middle class teenager at, at minimum, but she's sort of the, this generation's Peter Parker, right? She's kind she's sort of an underdog, sort of nerdy, but not that, she's not really that nerdy, honestly. No, I, I, everything that you, I, I like saying, you know, this generation's Peter Parker, because that's, that's pretty much exactly what she is. She likes what she likes. She and she's a big fan of the Avengers and Marvel. And I love. I have to say, I have to. I love the graphics of the series. I ju- that's probably my favorite part. Yeah, it like it plays out like a comic book, right? Like they uh, when she and her friends are texting each other, you see the texts on just you know on buildings. You you see you see when she draws comics, you see the comics kind of play out across. It's very clever. Yeah, very clever and really, really well done. Um, I have to say, somewhat unrelated to the superhero aspect of this, the familial stuff, the stuff, the dynamic she has with her parents and her their overprotectiveness and the restrictive. I mean, I felt like I was just watching myself all over again. I'm not Pakistani. I'm Iranian American, as you know, um, and but it's very similar that our parents' attitudes to us, us doing anything at all is very similar, especially if you're a girl. They raise her to be good. The parents raise her to be good above all else, right? Um, yes, and that seems to be a subjective term because she is good. She's a very good girl. Yes. But uh, their expectations for that is a lot higher than what she's giving them so far. But she's when she was kind of um, campaigning for them to allow her to go to avenger con i was just like oh my god no i'm having so many flashbacks because that was me campaigning my parents to go to nightclubs not this very innocuous animation convention but to go to actual you know hair metal clubs uh, to see hair metal bands when i wasn't 18 yet yeah it reminded me i mean i don't you, you said you hadn't seen turning red the pixar movie but no. the, the dynamic you know and obviously they're they are chinese but um the dynamic is very similar you know it's like you've got this good studious some you know but normal girl who doesn't necessarily want to play by the old school playbook now i now the, this is just the pilot. So, you know, there's going to be all kinds of superhero shenanigans coming up. But I, I think the, the pilot set up the general sort of vibe of the show. So I agree. Ms. Mar- Ms. Marvel is very delightful. You know, the Marvel rarely um, completely strikes out. And, uh, you know, they've, they've done a nice job adapting the comic book. I interviewed um, the uh, creator of Ms. Marvel, the comic book creator of Ms. Marvel, Sana Amanat. Uh, a few years ago, and uh, she has a heavy hand in um, the content of the show. So I feel like it's a very, very faithful adaptation of the comic books, which are beloved by the current generation of comics fans, if not, yeah. if not us. So let's um let's switch gears. Let's talk about the boys, which is the <laughs> third season on Amazon Prime. And you know, I have a uh, my son is nineteen years old, and uh, he was like, "Hey, Dad, you want to watch the boys? You want to watch the boys? Let's watch the boys together." I was like, uh, you know, I was kind of putting it off. Because I honestly, like, I felt like season two of the boys, like, I loved season one. Season two, there were way too many exploding heads. And I felt like the Nazi plotline was was kind of heavy-handed, honestly. Um, but I was like, fine. Finally, I sat, after we watched Ms. Marvel, which is like PG as PG can get, we sat down and watched the boys. Within the first five minutes of the first episode of season three, there's this character called Termite, who's kind of like a, the boys' version of Ant-Man. He can shrink down real small. 
he has he has he's and he's gay or at least he has gay sex and he has a partner and and they they're doing bumps of cocaine and termites shrink shrinks down to a tiny tiny size and goes inside his partner's penis and you see the inside of the penis it was horrifying my son was like oh my god i'd be embarrassed to watch this with anyone not not just my dad and then he sneezes because of the cocaine and he blow and, and his partner explodes <laughs> he, horrifying right i mean I have to say, uh, because I have press access, I've binged the entire third season. There, there are some disturbed writers in that writing room. Yeah, so it just so it doesn't it doesn't improve in terms of its its outrageousness. No, no, I mean it's it's very, very, very violent. But you know, the violence is all like that scene you just described, where there's an element of humor to it because it's so extreme, the violence that you have to kind of temper it with something that makes it seem jokey because it's just, it's a lot. Gore doesn't even begin to describe it. I mean, when the, when superheroes kill someone in the boys, I mean, they don't, people don't, don't people explode. They, 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 spl- they, they splatter and, and you see, and, and it's really, really disgusting. Uh, yeah, it, they do, and it's and it's also just like this careless way they have with people's lives. Uh, where I was like, "Oh, oops, <laughs> I killed you." Yeah, that's like the humor part of it, but they're just genuinely ruthless. They're really ruthless and unhinged, and you don't know what they might do. Um, Homelander is entirely out of control this season. Um, completely out of control. He's he is pretty terrifying because you're just on edge the whole time. The whole time. At any moment, Homelander, who is sort of like the Superman character in the show, but but more powerful in some ways and just way crazier, at any moment he could kill anybody and everyone is terrified of him at all times. Yeah, and he's also not, um, you know, it's it's his agenda. What is he after? And also, like, like you said, he's really powerful. So no matter what other superhero or soup, as they call it, is around him, he can still annihilate them. It doesn't, you can't really battle him and win. There's no, yeah, a, a, a team up of 10. It wouldn't really matter. And yeah, and so, you know, it's, uh, in some ways it's tough to watch. I, I will say I do like, and I feel like they've kind of doubled down on this, that the parody of superhero culture that the boys does you know there's like this reality show where these characters are competing to be in the seven which is the boys's version of the justice league there's you know there's the amusement park there there are movie parodies and sometimes the superheroes have to sing these cheesy songs yeah you know and that stuff's all pretty fun i think it is and it's uh it's unexpected and you're just like wait what's happening and you know this season not to spoiler it for anyone but the deep is coming to his own the deep is my favorite character and now he's gotten some confidence and he's kind of um his own version of out of control he's still sweet but he's just it's a whole other side of the deep yeah the deep is a uh, it's kind of an their their version of aquaman um, and he was he was very insecure, and then he joined some kind of Scientology like cult, and then he <laughs> then he got, but then he, then he, now he's been deprogrammed, and yeah, he's I like I like the deep uh, quite a bit. It, it's the subplots are a lot of fun. I honestly like find 
the main plot of the boys themselves. I don't really, I'm not a big Billy Butcher fan. You know, there's, there's stuff in it that I just, that, that I, I don't, I don't quite dig, but there's enough so that I keep coming back to it. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not even following the main story if I'm being honest, because I keep forgetting what it is because I'm so involved in these side stories and everybody's backstories that, you know, bit by bit are getting revealed we see a lot of um starlight's backstory and how it connects with the music on the show there's there's a lot going on there's a lot i don't recommend binging it by the way for people who might be catching up on the boys like really you have to space those episodes out yeah no i watch i actually find myself not able to i have to take three or four days just because like there's only so many exploding heads i can put in a (laughs) diet correct yes so i will i will say I'm going to guess that there aren't any exploding heads in Ms. Marvel. I, I, it's, it's much, much more cartoony, much, much sweeter. I would say you could watch that safely with your kids ages seven and up. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, just based on the pilot alone, and I doubt it's going to get, I doubt it's going to go extreme. I think they pretty much have stayed within certain boundaries and going back to what you asked, what you were saying at the very beginning about um, me and my interaction with teenagers in my role as, as a teacher librarian, our students just blanket love Marvel. They love, well, they love, they love DC too, but they really love Marvel in this complete I kind of devoted, unconditional way. It's their pop culture. It, it is their pop culture. It's, it, you know, it's their whole lives. They're, you know, at this point, you're looking at people who, kids who were like born into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it's been their whole lives, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. The thing that what people don't understand uh, is that a lot of students, a lot of our students, a lot of lower income students, they only have Netflix. They don't have Hulu. They don't. They certainly don't have HBO. They don't have. They they just don't have a lot of the other streamers. So I, I get, I'm wondering though, like, how does that play in? Because Marvel isn't on Netflix. Uh, yeah, no, it's not. And it might be that it, they'll find some other way to watch it, or they'll borrow someone's login. You know, nobody heard me say that. Uh, I think I think we've all played those tricks before, Lily. Whether <laughs> whether, whether we're uh, working class or middle class or not. Yeah. All I know is that Ms. Marvel is uh, safe for families to watch, and I would I would put the boys strongly at an NC seventeen rating. NC seventeen and uh, spaced apart. I can't overemphasize that. Yes. All right. Lily Moyeri, thanks so much for stopping by to talk about the wide range of superhero entertainments available on our streamers now. Thanks for having me. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Stephen Garrett is back in the Book and Film Globe podcast studio, our virtual studio, to talk about a new Pixar movie. It's shocking that there's a Pixar movie on screen, but uh, they released this one in the theater, unlike the last one, which they released on Disney+. Plus. This is Lightyear, which is a prequel, sequel, mequel of sorts (laughs) 
to Toy Story, the Toy Story franchise. It's none of those things. None of them, but also none of those things. It's all of those things. It's a side, it's like a side project. <laughs> it's like it's like a, a super band side project of, of the Toy Story franchise. It's a very, very odd um, premise, honestly. Like Buzz Lightyear, you, you all may or may not remember, is in fact a toy owned by an annoying young man named Andy. It's a toy that he got after he saw his favorite movie and Pixar cleverly informed us that in these title cards that this is that movie i didn't see the movie i didn't see the movie i was i was under the weather yesterday i was planning to see it and i was going to talk about it with steven. but steven has seen the movie yes it is this is that movie and that's it was the first of many giggles i had watching this movie and it comes in the first opening seconds you know it's like three usually expository cards that open a movie are kind of you know weighty or they have some long thing that they need to explain or whatever you know like top gun you know, has like, you know, that, that long card explaining what the Top Gun school is. This was like three cards. Each card was like a me- like, like a sentence. You know, it's like, Andy saw this movie. He bought the toy. This is that movie. And I was like, you know, that's, it's incredibly stupid and actually pretty clever, I think at the same time. And that's, and that's, that's in a nutshell what this movie is. This is a, this is a movie that nobody asked for, nobody wanted, nobody even thought to make. And uh, why would you, you know, and it's not a prequel and it's not a sequel. It's a it's a movie that somebody might have even referred to in another movie, but I don't even think they did. But it's also a clever way of of reviving Buzz Lightyear as an IP character that they can now make movies about, uh, you know, to infinity and beyond. You know, it's just so clever because suddenly by doing that, you're like, oh, I'm watching a movie 30 years ago when movies were fun. And stupid. <laughs> well, you're also wide. I mean, you know, let's, this, whatever, you can't, it's stupid, right? If you think about it too much, it, it is idiotic, you know? And I mean, there's very progressive, like, black lesbian who gets married and has a family. That would not have not, that would not have happened in 1995 in a big studio. Um, and clearly this movie will not get released in China. No, there was a whole genre of black lesbian astronaut uh, space movie, family <laughs> right. movies in the 1990s. That's right. Kicked off with Apollo 13, I think. One of the blacker movies ever made. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, whatever. I mean, look, I, I read your review. I didn't see the movie. And now I'm probably not going to. I, I had to. I literally had a ticket, but I was just like, I just, I just could not get off. Did I dissuade you? My my description made you think, yeah. I don't no, I was down for it. I was I'll, I'll watch anything, but I I just I just was not feeling good. So whatever. I mean, this sounds like a, a perfectly cute space adventure. Uh, Buzz Lightyear rockets off into space and ends up going through some kind of time hole, wormhole. It's idiotic. I mean, you know, the story couldn't be more generic and kind of uh, banal in the sense of the hero's journey and how he's like he, within the first five minutes he gets into trouble because he doesn't work as a team with other people. Right. And so he needs to learn that. And he does by the end, the end. And that's that's the arc and that's the movie. But the thing that actually kept amusing me and it was funny because there's this little robot cat named Socks that's in the trailer. And, you know, as, for, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I almost dry heaped, you know, I kind of threw up a little in my mouth. And I was like, this is a stupid movie. I don't want to see this movie at all. This sounds horrible. And I was really bracing for impact when I sat down. But I was like, whatever. You know, I got to review something this week. Let's do this. And uh, and lo and behold, the cat is the funniest thing in the movie. It is really funny. It's hilarious the way they voiced it, the way they wrote it. I mean, this is all about the doodling in the margins, you know, of this very generic story. Some really, I mean, surprise, surprise, they're smart, funny, clever, 
uh, people who work at Pixar. And I feel like they looked at this and they said, yeah, no, we can't have this be a disaster. Let's, let's actually doodle on it and draw like a funny mustache on this, you know, on this face and actually make it kind of fun. So it, clearly they were amusing themselves. And I think that shows. Don't underestimate the power of a robot pet, Steven. I never do. I never do. Robbie, the robot. Is he, was he a pet? He was a servant. <laughs> he, he was a gumball machine, essentially. <laughs> what about uh, Danger Real Robinson? That's Robbie the Robot, right? I'm getting it mixed up with the guy from Forbidden Planet. What was that? They was your servant too. Yeah, they're all they're they're all just servant. And this cat is also a servant. He is serv. He, yes, he is actually. He's quite servile. But he's also a friend. He's also a friend. He's a sidekick. He's a cat. Yeah, like a, like a pet. He's like our pets. All right. Clearly, there's not a lot to talk about cinematically <laughs> when it comes to Lightyear. I mean, but to your point, it is interesting that they're deciding to put this in a movie theater instead of just release it straight to video where it could have done just fine, too. I think there's a spectacle aspect of it. I think there's also an, a, like a brand awareness that they think, oh, we can actually uh, make a little money on this by putting it in theaters. And they quite well. I mean, it seems to be tracking well and, and, you know, it'll help them, you know, with Disney plus, uh, in terms of creating awareness enough so that they can make more iterations of this incredibly generic. Well, all I know is that, you know, I had a reservation to see it at like nine o'clock on a Thursday, which is the only showing probably that wasn't going to be full of children. (laughs) Now now I'm never going to see it. Maybe, Uh... maybe. Well, it'll be on Disney Plus sooner. It'll be on an airplane. You'll watch it on Disney Plus on an airplane, and you'll laugh. Yeah. And you'll say, you know what? He was right. I missed out. My life is less rich because I didn't see it with children in a theater. I guess, I guess I'll just have to die with regrets. <laughs> <laughs> and you will. All right. Steven Garrett, thanks for stopping. Talk to you soon. Okay. Talk to you later. It's always food season on TV, but there's an especially uh, juicy round of cooking competitions currently ongoing for our summer. Uh, Master Chef has a new season out. It's uh, back to win. Former contestants who either almost won or didn't almost win, but had some kind of personality quirk that the producers liked. And there's also a new Iron Chef season on Netflix. Daniel Cohen, our resident gaming, gambling, and food expert, is here once again to talk to me about it. Hello. Hi, Neil. How are you? I am well, and I'm very hungry, as usual. So um, I, I, I am, too. We're recording this right before lunch, so this is going to be uh, – <laughs> hopefully this will inspire some sort of move on my part. Right. We're not together. We're, you know, we're in separate parts of the country, but, you know, as usual, I will watch my lunch while watching MasterChef or Iron Chef or some – version of a chef competition so let's talk about um master chef first right so this is you wrote a piece uh on the site this week yeah. where you ha- handicapped who had the best chance of winning and it's not like uh top chef where you can actually you actually can tell who the good chefs are necessarily because a lot of these math the master chef it's a different um level of the culinary hierarchy right these are amateur chefs or they they are when they first appear at master chefs now you, you, you seem to have a lot of Instagram influencers or private chefs. They've graduated from master chef to being, you know, low level culinary professionals, basically. And so they, they've all returned. These are people who didn't win and they've returned to uh, get revenge, to, 
It's a redemption season. And one thing that's kind of interesting about the uh, the preview episodes there was it was it was made clear in, in a way that I hadn't realized that simply being on the show is enough to have a culinary career. Like these people are endorsing things. These people are like actually apparently making money doing this for for a living. You know, maybe, serving, maybe. <laughs> which I thought was kind of cool because there's sort of. If you've been watching the show as long as I have, you understand that what it what it what it what it actually does is sort of uh, sell cookbooks for the winners, right? That's that's sort of the the ultimate goal of it is to sort of propel them into the like sort of middle brow echelon where people are interested in buying their cookbooks, and then I'm sure some subsidiary of Fox prints the cookbooks and everybody goes home happy. Maybe they get, maybe they get to be on the Kelly Clarkson show. Yeah, oh, well, they absolutely get to be on the, on the Kelly Clarkson show. And but the, the question has kind of always been like, what happens to the guy who finishes fourth? You know, who maybe like the fan favorite or maybe the fan not favorite, but doesn't get the quarter of a million dollars or the shitty trophy or the book deal. Like that's that's sort of been the open question for a decade. And we don't necessarily see these people on TV, but they're doing a lot of work at like, you know, balloon fests and, and, you know, strange luxury events somewhere in, 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 in uh, you know, Orange County. Like, right. So if, if you, if you win or, or even place on Top Chef, you're at the food and wine festival in Aspen, you're opening yeah. restaurants in Boston, you know, you are, you're a guest judge on Chopped, you know, you're, you're at a, you're at a slightly, you're at a different level of the, of the culinary hierarchy. And here it's like, all right, I'm a, I'm a private chef in St. Cloud, Minnesota, or, I, right. I'm an Instagram influencer who makes desserts look pretty. <laughs> I'm 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 in year six of culinary school, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also the children or near children who Gordon Ramsay sends to culinary school. And then when we see them again on this show, now they're working. Yeah, and that's it. the other thing too is like they they've merged the timelines of MasterChef and MasterChef. Well, also, like also like there's a lot of pursuing your dreams. Like I was a lawyer. <laughs> but I wanted to be a chef, so I pursued my dream. Like, why? Why would you do that? How, how much you must be making more money as a lawyer? I understand that lawyer, being lawyering is kind of soulless work, but it's like, why does everyone have this dream of being a chef? I mean, I don't get it. It's a good, it's a good question, but I think it's a little bit more specific than that. I think these people have a dream of being a TV chef, right? And that's a different thing. Like, where it's, it's, it's. We talked about this last time, where it's like there's this sort of circuit of like also rands on these shows who just appear on other shows at this point and and sort of sort of getting to be elevated into that circuit pretty much guarantees you you know income without having to work too hard for the foreseeable future but it's almost impossible to go from master chef right <laughs> to the other to even to chopped like you don't even see that crossover like master chef is its own universe, you know. It's like there are a couple people, interestingly, who have graduated from MasterChef to like actually winning James Beard awards and things like that. Like Christine Ha, who is the, the the blind contestant who won many years back, is a very successful and kind of renowned restaurateur in Houston now, and she was on Top Chef as a judge this past season. So it does happen. There is some crossover, but what I find interesting about MasterChef is that it it is its kind of. It's its own self-contained weird universe. You know, the, the Gordon yes. Ramsay shows in general specialize in second tier, third tier contestants. You know, Hell, Hell's Kitchen is 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 the dirtiest of them all. Yes, just a <laughs> grotesque boot camp. Yeah, the food the food is is almost incidental to like the abuse and the sort of rancor that comes out of the these, these people with genuinely horrible personalities. 
you know, just constant, constantly smoking and bitching in the backyard of the mansion or, you know, having to like clean up garbage, like literal garbage outside of wherever they've been cooking. While wearing a tutu or something. Exactly. Ridiculous. Right. Like there's none of that on MasterChef. No, MasterChef, like they're, it's much more curated. You know, you find yourself rooting for people there. Some of them are attractive. Yeah. It's much more culturally diverse. You know, people are wearing sort of costumes, you know, headbands and certain kinds of sweaters or, or shirts or whatever, you know, a lot, of, a lot of wacky haircuts, wacky haircuts, long nails and stuff. But, um, but it's not, it's not as down and dirty. The thing is, these people are actually training essentially under the, the um, right. watchful eye of ma- uh, of restaurateurs and, and experts. And you can see them evolve and learn it. I mean, MasterChef is a good show. Anyone who likes food TV, if you don't like MasterChef, you're doing something wrong because it does have, it has its own thing going on and you just, you just kind of get used to the rhythm. And I, and I will say too that like, it's slightly off topic, but if you've never really experienced MasterChef Junior, which is the kids show, it's a, a genuinely pleasant show. Like there's lots of jokes and, and sort of like Gordon Ramsay's humiliating himself instead of other people. And it's, it's, it's kind of a nice change of pace that that's, that series is ending right now as the senior season is picking up. I can't do it. I cannot watch children cook or bake. I just, I'm <laughs> like, I, I don't, I've been a father my whole for for 20 years, and my, my goal is to not watch children. That's anymore, fair. Do anything. So uh, I, I that's just not a genre. When Chops does Junior or the Junior Baking Championships, I, I I turn it off. I just I can't take it. All right. So I want to talk about Iron Chef, the Iron Chef quest for an Iron Legend. Uh, it's the return of Iron Chef. I mean, look, I love Iron Chef. It is the original cooking competition, and the the more recent iteration of it that was on Food Network, Iron Chef Gauntlet, was probably the worst version of Iron Chef. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I was thinking about this just now, and it's like when I was a teenager in the 90s and, you know, the, the OG Iron Chef started to be shown on American TV, like, it was sensational. All of my friends and I were suddenly obsessed with the Food Network, not just Iron Chef. But that was the tent pole. Yeah, it came out. It came out of nowhere, and it was the it was the template for all cooking competitions. But you look at like you know, I put this in my piece. You look at the difference between what they were cooking on the original Iron Chef. You know, yeah. that was like these were guys in big chefs hats. They were like you know, it was like whole sturgeon in a swallow's nest, or it was like you know, very fancy imperial Chinese cuisine, right? Really high end Japanese meals, like Escoffier style French cooking. I mean, and and the their challengers were, the, were those kinds of bocuse d'or type people with like wild wildly exotic ingredients like even for for, for japan things that you've never heard of or they've never cooked with yeah like eggs of the only the eggs of the only fish of its species left alive still or something <laughs> right um, right whereas <laughs> in the first episode of the new iron chef there this hipster dude from new orleans literally serves the judges a soggy quote street taco in a Fritos bag. Yeah. And I'm like, what in the world? How, how has food, I don't know if it's declined, but how has food changed so much? And you could, you could, you could uh, bag on him for that. But Curtis stone, the iron chef who he was competing against was just spit roasting euros right next to him. It's not like it was like that much different. No, not at all. And it's, it's funny too, because like, I've seen the first couple episodes now and the, the ingredients are so pedestrian and, and, and not just the ingredients themselves, but the dishes that are being served are things that you or I could cook in an hour. 
hamburgers. Yeah. <laughs> Omelets almost. It's like it's not to say there's no technique involved because there certainly is, but it's like there's almost no imagination involved to, to utilize that technique, which I find is is really bizarre. But it's it's a representation of how food has changed, you know. Sure. We now consider, you know, an Asian slider served on a bun that looks like a football to be gourmet. It's it's I don't want to say it's necessarily tongue in cheek. I haven't seen the entire series, and it's hard to say you know whether or not it's going to get more serious towards the end. But it certainly feels like it's sort of embracing a lot of the worst trends in food, maybe in the last decade or so, where like we don't call it Asian fusion anymore because it's it's a little bit orientalist. But you see those flavors being incorporated into like American garbage all the time. Like it's it you know putting a bunch of kimchi in a Bloody Mary doesn't make it any different than a Bloody Mary. <laughs> yeah, although the judges, I don't, I think if it was bad, I mean, the judges for the show are like Andrew Zimmer, Neelu Muhammad, you know, Francis Lamb. I mean, these are not people who, if you serve them bad food, they're going to say it. Shout out to Francis Lamb and the the, uh, the ginger garlic scallion sauce, by the way. E- exactly. But, you know, like Andrew Zimmer does not, does not suffer um, food fools lightly. You know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot about this new Iron Chef that is quite good. You know, Al- Alton Brown is, is an excellent host, uh, born for the role. Yeah, I don't mind Kristen Kish as his sort of sideline reporter. She's she's totally good, and um, the the chairman, boy, he really they really unleashed him in this. I, it's the same guy who was playing quote unquote the chairman's nephew, in the the previous iterations. But he he's 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 on some shit. But this is uh. <laughs> if I, and you know what, it's fine. It's like if you're gonna do it, you might as well you might as well take it take it to the top. And he is really he is. He, this is it. You know, this is it. This is his role of a lifetime. This is his moment to shine. And he's taking it. You know, my question about the show is who is who? You know, it's like, okay, Curtis Stone is an Iron Chef, but he, we never saw him earn that title of Iron Chef. Right. We, we've got some, I, I noticed that too, that the, the, the Iron Chef, uh, the listing of the five of them was pretty underwhelming, honestly. Marcus Samuelson, obviously a great chef, but it also, Last time I saw, he was a judge on Chopped. Um, Curtis Stone. Last time I saw him, maybe he was appearing as a guest judge on Top Chef, but he was also he's like, been the host of Top Chef uh, spinoffs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like why why is he an Iron? Because they because he was available. What's funny is that it, if you if you watch the preview, the first episode, they show all these people that you recognize from Top Chef, actual chefs just sort of doing chef stuff, and and then we haven't seen them so far. And it's it's possible that they're going to show up later on, or maybe be somebody's sous chefs or whatever. Well, I was like, and then you got Kristen Kish who won a Top Chef, and but why isn't she competing against the Iron Chefs? Why is she hosting? It's like there's the hierarchy's all messed up, you know. They could they could exactly they they could have gotten Tommy from Master Chef to do it. That that would be a treat. But what? Yeah, he would get pummeled. But and I and the chefs they're picking are are obviously good, but it's also like. Some of these people are like, they were runners up on Chopped, and now they're taking on Curtis Stone, who hasn't, as far as I can tell, ever won anything. You know, Stephanie Izard ran that gauntlet uh, and became an Iron Chef, but apparently she's not an Iron Chef anymore. Is she just going to, like, show up in the parking lot with Alex Guarnaschelli, also a former Iron Chef? You know, on a supermarket stakeout. I don't. I don't get what's going on. Like, there's no. There's no. There's got to be some contractual stuff happening there because Stephanie Izard is often on Top Chef, and she may have some sort of like sure exclusivity to deal with them. Sure, I understand that. I understand that. But like, the hierarchy is all messed up. Like in the original Iron Chef, those four guys were the Iron Chefs. The original Iron Chef America: Morimoto, Bobby Flay, Mario Batali, Kat Cora. 
they were they were like iconically Iron Chest. Most of those people, are, well, they're never going to put Mario Batali on TV again, obviously. Uh, no, and I, maybe the others are, are like just are just kind of worn down. You know, like where's Michael Simon? What happened to him? What happened to Mark Forgione? What did they not want to do it? Some parts of it, some parts of it came over. Like like you know, again, Alton Brown certainly has some sort of deal with the Food Network, so it can't be that. We got sort of like twenty percent of the original sort of cast of the show, and then and then yeah, a bunch of people that we sort of vaguely know. But my question is, if this is the ultimate culinary competition, as they <laughs> as they advertise, then what are the terms? You know, and and really, are they really competing to win that chintzy plastic knife? <laughs> I, I love I love the knife. Let's let's put it this way. Iron Chef is no longer at the top of the pyramid. It's chopped. It's chopped with a much higher budget, basically. Yeah, it's a it's a higher pedigree chopped. I just don't get it. I'm still watching it. Absolutely. <laughs> I got to see who wins that knife. I mean, come on. All right. Well, Iron Chef uh, quest for an Iron Legend. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should audition for it. Is now uh, available on Netflix and uh, Master Chef. Quest for Fire, I think was that was it called? Back, back to Back to Win. Back to Win is uh, is on Fox, and also you can watch it as I do without commercials on Hulu. Daniel Cohen, as always, thanks for stopping by. And in the words of my uncle, Ali Cuisine. <laughs> thanks a lot. All right, thanks, Daniel. That conversation made me hungry. Food TV always makes me hungry as I sit there and eat my chips and salsa. Maybe, maybe a little guacamole sometimes too, but usually it's just a chips and a tuna sandwich while I watch them create these amazing concoctions out of goose liver or whatever. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Lightyear and to Lily Moyeri for stopping by to talk about Ms. Marvel and The Boys, which are airing respectively on Disney+. Plus and on Amazon Prime. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. This is the Book and Film Globe podcast, your one-stop shop for food criticism, film criticism, TV criticism, occasional book criticism, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great time. Wherever you're doing, I'll talk to you soon. a tailgating episode and Keyshawn Johnson and Vernon Davis from the NFL were sous chefs. There may not be two men who know less about tailgates than former NFL players. It's not like they were showing up in pads, you know, three hours before the game to uh, eat a bratwurst off the back of somebody's Silverado. Like, that's just not happening. These guys have probably never been to a tailgate in their lives. If they're like, okay, Vernon, go, go grind that meat. Original production. Most podcasts are awful. Oh,
Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated in the App Store.